0: if you're used to the typical new york chair uh, this isn't it these are upholstered with tapestries and that is very very different from the upholstery that most people are used to seeing
1: hello welcome back to curious objects brought to you by the magazine antiques i'm ben miller If you've ever walked around in Lower Manhattan, the name Beekman is probably familiar to you. There's Beekman Street. There's the Beekman Tower, designed by Frank Gehry. There's the Gilded Age Beekman Hotel. The list goes on. And if you're like me, you probably walked down Beekman Street, in that grand old historic neighborhood, and asked yourself, how do I get to the subway? Okay, well, I can't help you with that, but in today's episode, we are going to take a look at another remnant of the Beekman legacy here in New York a set of chairs made for James Beekman in the early 19th century. Now, this was a time when New York's famous street grid had just been planned out. The Erie Canal was being dug out and was about to explode the city with commerce from the Midwest. The population was blooming with immigrants, and the city was rapidly overtaking Philadelphia as the largest in America. And in the midst of all this, the city's elite families, the Beekmans among them, were expressing their wealth with increasingly lavish homes, competing with their European counterparts to create refined and impressive living spaces full of the best art, furniture, and silver and porcelain that they could get their hands on. The chairs we're talking about today are a fantastic example of the genre. They're New York-made, but grounded in English style and incorporating upholstery from France. This was James Beekman strutting his stuff. Joining me as always is Michael Diaz Griffith, and we spoke with Frank Levy, co-owner of the hundred-year-old firm Bernard and S. Dean Levy here in New York. If you've been listening to Curious Objects for long enough, you'll remember Frank talking with us at the Winter Show back in 2018 about a pair of tables that coincidentally also have Beekman provenance, but this time we got to do a deep dive into the history of the aesthetics and the culture and commerce and industry that these chairs can tell us about. It's a great story, and Frank's a great storyteller. So stick around, and we'll get started right after this.
2: Curious Objects is sponsored by Freemans. I'd like to bring your attention to America's oldest auction house, Freemans. Located in Center City, Philadelphia, Freemans has been telling the story of valued objects and collections since 1805. With international experience and a comprehensive knowledge of market conditions, the specialists at Freemans work closely with consignors and collectors to offer unparalleled assistance in the sale and purchase of fine art, design, decorative arts, jewelry, books, and more. Are you curious about the value of your collection? Freemans is now welcoming consignments for their November American Furniture Folk and Decorative Arts Auction. For more information about auction valuation, please visit Freemans online at freemansauction.com. Curious Objects is also sponsored by Reynolda House Museum of American Art, one of the nation's most highly regarded collections of American art on view in the 1917 North Carolina estate of R.J. Reynolds. Don't miss iconic works that shaped a nation when Decker and the Golden Age of American illustration opens on August 31st. Learn more at ReynoldaHouse.org.
1: Let's go ahead and dive in. Um, Frank, thanks so much for joining us. And I just want to to waste no time and get straight into the chairs. Um, because the object that, um, that you've just introduced us to uh, here in your shop is, um, well, you showed us two chairs out of a, a much larger set um, that come from this very city of New York uh, about 200 years ago. Um, and I, I want you to tell us about them. And can you start for listeners just by telling us what they look like?
0: Sure. Um, the, if you're used to the typical New York chair, Uh, This isn't it.
1: This is not it.
0: This is not it. This is not the classic New York chair. These are upholstered with, um, I I think the first thing that people notice is the upholstery, and they're upholstered with tapestries, French tapestries that would have been imported. In fact, we know that they were imported and then bought at auction um, by the Beekman family, the owners of the chairs, um, in 1817. um, And that is very, very different from the upholstery that most people are used to seeing. You know, it's not the big medallion or silk or whatever.
1: Um, so, yeah, out, so what does it look like, the upholstery? What's what's depicted on these tapestries?
0: Uh, for the most part, they're Aesop's fables. I, you I need guess, to remember your Aesop's fables you to, well, very closely. <laughs> <laughs> There's that, and you almost have to be a little bit imaginative as mm-hmm. to what those okay. animals actually are. Yeah, got it. Um, but there are Aesop's fables throughout, throughout the scene. Right, right. Um, and then the two sofas have, I guess, more pastoral scenes. There's no... Single okay. scene on the sofas. They don't fit in as, as well.
1: Uh-huh. Um, and these are armchairs. These are armchairs. So, so they're, they're were they armchairs. meant for use at a, at a dining table?
0: Probably not. Um, the, at first, the thought was that they were made, when the Beekmans um, bought them, they had just finished building a an extra room on their house, uh, which was an octagonal room, which seemed to have been the rage in New York in around in this period of around eighteen fifteen to twenty-five. Uh, Madame Jumel builds an octagonal mm-hmm. room up at the Morris Jumel House. The the Beekmans have theirs, the octagon house down in Washington is built around this time. So you have something in the American brain is is about the octagon. Okay. Um, which then makes sense because you two sofas and sixteen chairs. Uh-huh. You know that works out with with eight. So right. you have two chairs in each corner that gets you to the sixteen. I think because they were armchairs, they were never thought of as dining chairs. Um, I think it would have been too complicated, too too much going on with all the armchairs. Um, there's nothing in the notes. There's nothing in the books that the Beekmans tell us what they were for. But having the octagonal room built on in this period really implies that the sixteen chairs and two sofas make sense for that. For
1: that. Room. So the way you imagine it, these were sitting chairs for leisure, um, for you a group before dinner or after dinner maybe to to congregate?
0: I, I think so, and I think also for just visual impact. For right.
1: visual impact, I right.
0: I think they, they said something. They're making a statement that, uh, you know, we're up to date with the most current uh, taste, the most current forms, but also, you know, the, the tie-in to France with the French tapestry. Mm. Now, here's one problem, which whenever we show these tapestries to French experts, they all say that this is, you know, like, The third worst
1: that
0: they've ever (laughs) seen. Very typical for what would be coming out as an export. Export quality. Uh Export quality. Exactly.
1: Do you think that New Yorkers would have known the difference? Not a chance.
0: Nope. They probably (laughs) thought this was as good as what the king and queen had. Yeah. You know, back before the revolution. Um, And we're most likely sold. This was what the king and queen had. We we see so Hmm. many sets of furniture from France that are here that have this great history of being in Versailles when there is no chance Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah they were
0: ever near Versailles. It's so. funny,
1: because I think of this period, I mean, we're talking about the 18-teens and 20s in New York. I think, I think of that period as the period when New York was really coming into its own as mm. a co- cosmopolitan center, when great houses were being constructed in New York, when New Yorkers were becoming rich on the same scale as people in England and France for the first time ever, and they were starting to uh, to fund craftsmen who are working at a much higher standard than ever before you know we're not talking about colonial american furniture that's basically something like yeah. folk art you know where we treasure it for its um for its rarity and and for its significance <laughs> maybe more than for its elegance but this this period in um in american decorative arts is becoming much richer much more sophisticated much more elevated um and yet Third-rate French tapestries are being used here. So, what, what? I mean, how do you explain that? Were were um, were the Beekmans uh, simply bamboozled, or did they not care? Or?
0: I, I don't think they were bamboozled. I think that this was what you were expected to get, and this was what was available. You know, if you don't know that there's something better, and, and also, I'm not sure that the looms were actually working in this period. These are probably. Mm mid, well, not mid, but late 18th century fabrics oh, okay. that came
1: over here. So they were already several decades old. Exactly. They were, and they were cut up
3: to be right. you know, placed on chairs as upholstery.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Again, yeah. anything that's
0: made for export is almost always a lower quality. So I, I think they just, they most likely thought these were as good as you could get. And in a sense, they were right, because they're as good as you can get here. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, that you mention the craftsman, because we know who made these, we have the bill, which is really
1: unusual for this period, very unusual for, for any period
0: of early American furniture, but we have the bill of sale uh, from the sets were made in two slightly different times. One is built in, I think, June of 1819, the other in January of 1820.
1: And it's eight chairs and one sofa in each, each of the two sets. Right. 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 Okay.
0: Um, They're built from a man named John Banks. Um, So in 1819, is, you know, dies, so it's unlikely that they would have used him. But uh, Fife is alive,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and Allison is alive, and there are, are many other cabinet makers that they could have gone to. And it's very puzzling, in a way, that the people of the Beekmans, of James Beekman's stature, the, the original owner of the chairs, would have gone to this guy, John Banks. Mm-hmm. Now, we knew of uh, a work table at Winneter that's stamped by him, There was a clock that came up at Sotheby's a few years ago that was stamped by him. Uh, There are a pair of tables in an upstate uh, historic house. There are a couple of things that we know that are labeled or stamped by banks, but they're not great things. Hmm. They're they're nowhere near the quality of these chairs. Why the Beacons chose to go to John Banks for this, we have no idea. Yeah. Uh, It's a really. There's no
1: known family connection, or he wasn't somebody's brother in law or somebody's. There's,
0: okay. Yeah, there's no, there's no family connection there. The only mild connection that there is is that Banks works on Beekman Street. Uh-huh. <laughs> but they all do. There, there are yeah. a lot of cabineters okay. on Beekman okay. Street. Yeah. Okay. So you can't just use that as, as the reason.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about, about the Beekmans? Um, you mentioned James Beekman's stature. Um, what, what was his stature and how did he get it?
0: The Beekmans were among the founding families of New York and among the most important families of New York. And it's not, you know, a coincidence that there's still, you know, Beekman Place, there's Beekman Tower. You know, there, there are a lot of Beekman ties still to New York City um, and the surrounding areas and up into Albany. Um, I could, honestly don't know how they all made their money. Um, I think James Beekman did a lot in sort of real estate uh, speculation, owned quite a bit of property and, and made money through rentals and things. Um the Beacons were one of the premier families in New York, and particularly in that period. So that the fact that they're I guess renovating their home would have been a big deal in the period. And the home, which unfortunately doesn't stand anymore, was around First Avenue and 51st Street, 52nd Street in okay. that area. Mm-hmm. Um, parts of it do remain, though, so that the Met has Mount Pleasant, which was the name of the house. They have their, uh, their mantelpiece All right. uh, on exhibit. And then that's actually surrounded by some of an earlier Beekman collection of, of furniture. Interesting that, that they had. Um, so the Beekmans are, are you know, major players in New York politics, New York uh, social society, um, and New York mercantile interests.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I have to say to be talking about these chairs that you just showed us in your gallery while we're sitting. Thirty blocks north of the house where they originally, uh, which they originally inhabited, and about two one, blocks one, or yes. one block from the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum, where other remnants of of that house still survive. Um, it's been a couple hundred years, but these pieces haven't moved very far, have they?
0: They haven't, and it's it's funny that you bring that up because we when we bought the set, the suite, um, we picked them up and we took them to our warehouse, which was in Queens at the time. And I realized as we were driving them over the 50 Street Bridge, that's the first time these chairs have left Manhattan Island Wow. since they were made. <laughs> Amazing. There, there's no, yes. we know the history. Talk about here.
1: shopping local. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: We know that the, you know, the history of where they've been passed down all the way through, um, until they were on on loan to the New York Historical Society, and then they they, the family decided to sell them in, in 2000. Um, they had never left Manhattan Island, and then they. They went out to Queens for a little bit, and uh, it's pretty remarkable.
1: Do you know anything about how they managed? I mean, so many of the treasures of early American families have been dispersed many generations ago, Um, and there are precious few artifacts that really managed to come down through all those generations to today. Do you know anything about what made that possible? I mean, how did the Beekmans keep track of these?
0: The Beekmans were incredible in their record-keeping. So the (laughs) The reason we know who the maker of these chairs is is because of the Beekman Papers at New York Historical. Um, A scholar, a woman named Elizabeth Banks, um, banks Elizabeth Bates, John Banks, Elizabeth Bates, uh, did research on these right after we bought them. Um, Because of the Beekman name, she figured maybe there's something in the papers. She found all the information about the maker, about the upholsterer, Um, about repairs they kept records of repairs on these chairs from 1850 from 1890 there's a portrait of a a beekman that features one of these chairs it's an 1890 portrait really and it features one of the chairs that we actually still have Um, where is that portrait it's in a private collection actually still belongs to the family oh really uh, last time i knew it was like 61st and 3rd, I think, or Lex. Okay, I mean, it's, But it's standing at one of the family <laughs> offices. So it's, it's only been 10 blocks. Yeah, them. it didn't go very <laughs> far. Um, but they kept these immaculate records. And I think because they were keeping records of, of their purchases, I think they also kept a lot of the mm, objects
1: that yeah. they had bought. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, some of them had found their way out into the marketplace over the years. Um, the sale in 2000... Uh, of things coming out of New York Historical, included some great, great things, a pair of New York Chippendale card tables, um, like the one we talked about a few years Mm -hmm. ago. Um, And we actually found a record of of those as to who made one of them, one of the two tables, which is the maker of both in that case. Um, There were some peer tables. There, There were a number of really wonderful things that came out that the family had just kept together. Mm-hmm. And the Beacon Family Historical Association, the Beacon Family Association, I'll never remember which one it is, has been wonderful in keeping that historic interest alive.
3: That's brilliant. Yeah. Let's, let's return to the chairs themselves for a moment, because I feel like we have a sense of how they're upholstered. But they're also beautifully and richly carved. And they're put together in an interesting way. And the methods of their construction vary a bit from chair to chair. So could you tell
0: us a bit about those details? Sure, sure. So you have two sets. Um, one set is built a little bit sturdier, in a sense. It has what's known as a medial rail underneath the seat, which is just a board that goes underneath the seat that you yeah. don't see from above. Um, that crest rail is tenoned into place, as you'd expect from mm-hmm. a chair of this period.
1: Um, by, sorry, just yeah. by that, you're referring to the kind of joint that holds, a joint, it, yes, it holds the, the piece together. It's basically a,
0: a tongue that fits into like the hole and then gets either pinned or, or just glued together right. and will stay together. Um, there's also the use of dowels in these. And, and um, I, I'm actually not sure if you want this for the podcast, but we just... Bring it on. Dowels. We
1: Let's love show. dowels at Curious Objects. <laughs> yeah,
0: we do. And we lo- love Dirty
3: Secrets and we love all of the details. Okay, so the
0: detail is, um, when, when the chairs came in, one was a little bit loose, and I opened it up at the crest, and there's, there's the sign of a dowel. Um, dowels, prior to, to 1800, are, are a bad word. You don't yeah. expect to see dowels. You expect that it's either a repair or, or a later chair. Um, as we found out subsequently, uh, there are mentions of dowels in price books, which are cabinet makers' books mm-hmm. of, of how they price different things. They price dowels at a certain price, round dowels, square dowels, which they actually do say are different from pins Hmm. and different from, um, from mortise and tenon joints. But, uh, so I spot the dowel and realize we have to get
1: these things x-rayed. Um, because there's something going on hmm. that's not visible from the surface, not visible and not normal, you know, not Uh what I expected to see.
0: So I called a friend and he called a friend and we ended up going down Somewhere in Maryland, um, to a vet's office. <laughs> really, big nice. horse. You know they had horses in there and everything yeah. else. So we, we bring them in and we take a bunch of X-rays.
1: Is this the second time that the chairs left Manhattan?
0: This would be the second time the chairs left Manhattan it was today, and it was just one, uh, two chairs. Went okay. Um, so, so as we're doing it, the, the vet finally comes in and says, "Guys, you, you got to go." And there's a dog waiting to get neutered.
3: Oh, no. <laughs> this
0: is way more interesting than we'd anticipated. Well, I think the dog would have preferred that we continue with the chair. Yeah, sure. That, you know, that every, everything had to happen as it did. Um, <laughs> but uh, so so the Dow was was an issue. And like I said, as it turns out, we found in – first in the Washington, D.C. Price Book of 1818 hmm. that they mentioned dowls. And I figured if it's in Washington, D.C., no offense to people in Washington – New York's going to be more on the forefront of cabinet mm-hmm. making at that period. It must be earlier here too. We found it in Philadelphia in 1814, um, and I think in New York in 1812.
1: That they right. So, so this was really sort of a, a, a discovery. Yes. Yeah. Um, on the basis of these chairs.
0: Exactly, and and when we announced this, um, all of a sudden a lot of museums started to X-ray their furniture, and the Met X-rayed they've a chair with very large scrolled arms the scroll arms are, are held on with with dowels. Winnetor has a chair from a, huh. from a similar to it, also doweled. Um, so that people have been looking at this now, and we're finding these dowels. Now, they're not completely doweled up. It's just yeah. in certain sections where they need them, where it's, it's sort of too thin for the wood to hold as a mortise and tenon joint. Um, at the scroll, where it's very thin on one set of chairs, that's where they, they use the dowel. So,
3: so do you think that style, changing forms, necessitated the use of a new technical solution or is this you know did did the dowel begin to emerge and people found reasons to use it for efficiency or economy is there
0: i think it's probably more economy because it's it's a cheaper easier way to put it together in the case of these chairs it allowed um allowed them to to give a little bit more grace Mm -hmm. uh, to one set because they could use the thinner thinner wood and more i guess more scroll is is not the right term but there's, there's more um oh gosh uh, movement to the back, yeah, hmm. there's a bit more grace in one set, the other set feels a bit more solid and, and that's the that's the Dell set, and I think a lot That's of, really interesting large part of that is that they don't need the big hunk of wood to keep the thing together right. they yeah. use right. the dells so um I, mean, I think later on it becomes just much more economical, but in this case, they're using technology to improve the design, yeah there are stylistic implications that I think we wouldn't expect for there to be.
1: Yeah. This is a great example of how looking at an object can open up new windows into history, isn't it?
0: No question with this group. Um, There is so much that we learn from, from these chairs. Uh, You know, like I said, we know the maker, we know the upholsterer. We know that they, they bought the fabric, the tapestry two years before the chairs were made. They didn't really buy the chairs. The chairs Uh are frames for Uh the tapestry. Yeah. Um, the fact that they held them for, for a year and a half before they hired somebody to make the chairs is, is pretty interesting. Um, they bought the, the tapestry at auction from a guy named McMenamin, which is hard to say. Um, <laughs> but we know he was an auctioneer in New York and auctioning both furniture and other decorative objects coming in from Europe, from Asia, from everywhere. Um, <clears throat> so that, that's one big part. Obviously, the family history is important with this. The use of dowels, how that, that changes things. You know, we're talking about pretty substantial differences between the two groups. You know, one sofa and eight chairs look a little bit different. I showed you some of the moldings that mm-hmm. are different on the arms. The carving is different. Um, the the way they've shaped the front rail is different. Yeah. And then the construction is different. Right. So they, they are two different sets. When you look through sets that were done, and, and perfectly legitimate, that is the way sure. that they, we know. Well, and, and, they, I mean,
1: they're for they're for me, looking at them from across the room, uh, I I wouldn't have guessed that they were right. different sets. It was only when you pointed it out mm. and you know under closer examination that you start to see those little differences in the details. Right. But yes. but for the sake of putting them in a an octagon around a room, you know anyone walking into that room is going to see sixteen chairs and. And after a few glasses of
3: punch, <laughs> a cigar, <laughs> three, you know, so one's
0: perception. abilities. The tables may start to move on you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the octagon spinning. Right. Um, but, but, you know, the question of what is a set, what is a pair uh, comes into play. And we see that in the 18th century with when you look through um, oh. the Cadwallader um, set.
1: Mm-hmm. We know
0: that those were shipped out to different cabinet makers and different carvers. Yeah, putting together that set so that the two card tables, which are a pair mm. made on suite, are very different. Right. You know, if, yeah. if somebody were to just look at them without knowing the outside information, they'd say these are not a pair; they're just two different tables. Yeah. Mm. Well, they are a pair. They were made for the same person at the same time. Yeah. Um,
1: By the so- way, for for uh, listeners who are enthusiasts about this, you can refer to the earlier episode in which Frank told us about the, these uh, card tables. Um, right, right. In uh, uh, at the winter show, actually, um, in 2018, yeah. uh, lots more information there. And this whole
3: question of of acquiring or hat or commissioning pairs relates to the way that houses were designed and that rooms were planned, right? And I think we don't always have an appreciation for that now because we're always looking for a kind of one off mm-hmm. special object, right? sideboard for the dining room but in the large classically planned rooms of the early 19th century you might be buying two pier mirrors or two sideboards or two card tables for a drawing room and I think that's it's a little difficult to wrap one's head around that kind of planning it's it's a different idea of how a room is constructed
0: when you buy an antique today you don't expect to be able to match it no,
3: yeah, and we kind of yeah. like that. You know, it's, it's, the, the developing taste favors that eclectic view. But that's not the way that our forefathers saw it.
0: They were buying en suite. They yeah. were putting together a group. Yeah. And that was a big deal for them. Um, you know, if, if you were buying something new today, you wouldn't buy three separate things necessarily. Um, you would try to have some you know, something where, where it's all similar. Or at least close together. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's what they were doing back then. Yeah. I mean, this was this was home decoration. Yeah. And symmetry mattered a great deal.
3: <laughs>
1: Indeed. <laughs> Indeed.
3: It did. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about the relationship between banks
0: and the upholsterer or upholsterers? I know that William Denny was involved. Yes. Okay. So William Denny is the upholsterer of one set. Okay. We know that he built for, for the upholstery of one set. We don't know who did the second set. And we don't know which is the first and the second set. We just know that one of them was done by Denny. Um, as far as I know, there there is no relationship except that they were fairly close to each other geographically. Okay, okay. They were both on Beekman Street um, and within, as best I can tell, uh, a quarter of a mile of each other's shops. Hmm. Um, so it's possible that, that uh, banks would have suggested Denny as an upholsterer, it's also possible he was available to do it. I, we just don't know. Yeah. We don't know enough about, I mean, we really don't know enough about how some of the the day-to-day uh, work took place, and we don't know who demanded what. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was this the the client saying, I want this guy to carve it, I want this guy to, to do it, to upholster it, or if it was just banks said, this is my guy to do it, I, we just don't know. I wish I had more information on that, but yeah. we don't.
3: And there might have been different practices, right, between cabinet makers in different cities, exactly. as there is yeah. today.
0: Yeah, it, I don't know that we know of any cabinet makers at this time who were also upholsters or who had their own upholsters. I think they were two very different trades at that time. Um, but yeah, I don't. I guess we just don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody may know. I don't. I don't know what the uh, what that relationship was yeah, between the two what about with the carving because these are very richly
3: ornamented chairs
0: without a doubt banks who ran what we assume is a fairly small shop would have brought in a professional carver okay. uh, to do it to do the carving would so probably
1: in, not a full-time staff
0: member not as, exactly yeah yeah now i mean fife at this point would have had carvers on on hand in his shop yeah. who would yeah. have done the work and he would have had set carvings that you could yeah. you could have applied to the chairs um, no, I think he brought in, in a, a, a freelancer to come in and do the work. He
3: didn't have to pay for health insurance. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's
3: right. Yeah, or dental. <laughs> or dental. <laughs> um, and
0: is the carving consistent between the two suites? It's not. There are differences. Okay. Um, again, you have to look closely, but there are differences in both the carving on the crest rail, the carving on the legs are different, and even the, the molding on the arm supports and the arms themselves are there two different molding profiles between the two sets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, it's pretty clear there are two different hands going after yeah. the two different sets. Interesting to see because if you put the two chairs together and put the legs together, you really do see the, the big difference between the two carvers. Sometimes carving can be a little bit confusing to people because they don't get to compare and contrast right next to each other. Mm. These are a good example where you see a different hand working uh, the same motif.
1: let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll chat with Frank about the long and rich history of his firm and what he's doing to bring his business into the future. First, I want to say thanks for listening. And to remind you that as always, you can see images of our curious objects online at themagazineantiques.com podcast. And there's even more on Instagram. I'm at Objective Interest, and Michael is at Michael Diaz Griffith. If you want to help out the podcast, one really quick thing you can do is to leave us rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Those ratings are great for helping new listeners find the show. Thanks again. We'll be right back.
2: Curious Objects is sponsored by Freeman's. I'd like to bring your attention to America's oldest auction house, Freeman's. Located in Center City, Philadelphia, Freemans has been telling the story of valued objects and collections since 1805. With international experience and comprehensive knowledge of market conditions, the specialists at Freemans work closely with consigners and collectors to offer unparalleled assistance in the sale and purchase of fine art, design, decorative arts, jewelry, books, and more. Are you curious about the value of your collection? To learn more about Freeman Specialists, upcoming auctions, and how to sell your items at auction, please visit Freemans online at freemansauction.com. Curious Objects is also sponsored by Reynolda House Museum of American Art, one of the nation's most highly regarded collections of American art on view in the historic 1917 Winston-Salem, North Carolina estate of R.J. and Catherine Reynolds. Don't miss the iconic works that shaped a nation when Lion Decker and the Golden Age of American Illustration opens on August 31st. Get one step closer to a true experience in American art by visiting reynoldahouse.org slash Liondecker.
1: We've been talking about chairs that are about 200 years old. I want to talk to you about something that's about 100 years old, which is to say you're firm. Okay. <laughs> um, how's that for a segue? Um, yeah, I mean, where we're sitting, you know, we're part of this, you are certainly part of this history. Um, of a a dealer in furniture um, with a great pedigree, um, and I think listeners would be interested to know something about the history of of the firm and and what brought it to where it is today and, and where it's going.
0: Happy to happy to talk about that. Um, so in in two thousand one, um, we thought that was our hundredth anniversary, and we hired a couple of people to do some research into was you know to doing a book or some sort of historical. Uh, something to put out. It turns out um, all the stories that we had been told basically from my grandfather about the start of the business were incorrect. (laughs) The old story was that my great grandfather, had this wonderful job as a foreman in a factory and his brother-in-law, John Ginsburg um, was this antique dealer who wasn't doing very well, was buying a Mm. bunch of stuff and always was borrowing money. And eventually, my great-grandfather said, that's that's it, we're partners.
1: You know, okay. He left his great
0: job <laughs> at the factory, which, in in retrospect, never made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, it's a good story. It's a good story, but as it turns out, it may be the opposite, where my great-grandfather was buying a lot of things and then couldn't sell them. Huh. And he brought in, he and John Ginsburg got together somehow, I think John had some money, and... In possibly as early as eighteen ninety six, formed Ginsburg and Levy. Um, they started down on the lower east side. We have a picture which I actually should show you guys of my great grandfather in front of the shop on Grand Street, which was their first shop. And they they actually say in the sign, Ginsburg and Levy antiques, brick a brac. I don't think they say dr- jump, but it's it's you know clearly a very different
1: But they use law. the word a Brickabrac is on, <laughs> is on the sign. it's
0: on the sign. And if you look in the window... That's
1: not on your sign today, is it?
0: We don't have a big sign, no. so no. <laughs> if we had room, we'd put brick a brick on it. But um, he, um, in the window, they have this big show window. There's nothing in there that we would sell today. Yeah. It was just stuff. No. Um, they moved up to Fourth Avenue at some point and actually bought their first major piece of American furniture, which is a uh, John and Thomas Seymour sideboard, which is currently at the Met. Right. So if you go into the, the Met, that's, that was the first piece that they bought. They, they apparently spent nights drawing it so that they could have this, you know, at least some record of what they had sold and a record of wow. what they had. Um, they sold that to a major collector who ended up donating, the family ended up donating to the museum. But that got them started on to better things. And they, they started to handle better things and then moved uptown again to 49th Street, where they sold to a lot of, like, Broadway stars and things like that. They were in that neighborhood. Or Fifty Seventh Street. This is all in the twenties until they finally bought a building at Eight Fifteen Madison Avenue, um, where they were for from nineteen. It's either twenty seven or twenty eight, all the way through till till the breakup in, in seventy three, um, and that's where actually my grandfather joins the firm and his, I guess, uncle's son. Whatever it's it gets a little convoluted uh-huh. who, who's who, but. Um, where they both joined and were working together, Ben Ginsburg is also fairly well known, um, and and they worked out of the eight fifteen Madison for many many years, and that's where and they were really handling great American things and English things, but but at a lower level. I mean, it was sort of English things that looked American. So mm-hmm. for people who couldn't afford the Great American, they could afford something quite beautiful that was English. Um, and they were selling to a lot of the great collectors. I mean, they sold to DuPont, they sold to Ima Hogg, that she was a very special client for my grandfather. They sold to Henry Ford in the '30s, and he's the one who kept them through, got them through the depression. Oh, he really? would spend, we think, anywhere from two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars in nineteen thirty-one, thirty-two dollars. Wow! With them, and and that enabled that's them real to, money. It was a huge amount of money, and because things were cheap. Uh, at that point, they built up an incredible stack. I mean, we're still the beneficiaries of what oh, they incredible. did in in those in huh. the thirties and, and early forties. Yeah. Um after my grandfather got back from the war, he was obviously much more involved in the business and like I said, sold to a lot of the top collectors. Another one was George Alfred Cluett, mm-hmm. who was a, a big name in the collecting world but not as famous as let's say DuPont or Ha I He had some great things. Some really, really great things. Um Anyway. Uh, and then
1: what happened in 1973?
0: So in 73, uh, my father's in the business and my grandfather together. They There was a family quarrel, and they split. They, they left and moved up to uh, the second floor of the Carlisle, uh, which was at that point right across the street from, from Park Burnett, Sotheby's. Right. And they were there from 73 to 86, well, 87. Um, and then 87, we moved to this building which is uh, 24 East 84th Street. And that's right around when I started. I, I was at winter for two years and then joined the firm in, in 89. Uh, no, wait, a minute, 91. Um, and we've been here ever since. But um, as of May 15th, we have sold this building and have bought a property down on 17th Street in Chelsea um, between 7th and 8th Avenue, which will hopefully be... <laughs> ready to be moved into in the next six months or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's very
1: exciting. It was funny, as you you were telling us earlier, that the firm has had a longstanding tradition of moving farther and farther uptown. Yes. And now you're going right back down to to where you started. (laughs) (laughs) We're making a
0: 180 right back down there and and heading a little bit west. So, um,
1: yeah, it's, it's, that's something that I have thought
0: about because it has been this progression uptown and uh, it's, it's a new neighborhood for us. Um, I think we're new to that neighborhood although there's, there's quite a bit of, of obviously art galleries yeah. down there, a lot of modern furniture galleries and mm-hmm. just in the neighborhood there, there's a lot of home furnishing which you know in essence is what we are I mean these, they're artworks and they're, they're historically important but they're also home furnishings and if that's one way for somebody to at least catch the bug, get interested mm-hmm. in it um, because I think it's pretty, that's a perfectly legitimate way yeah. yeah. to, to get into into early American decorative arts. Yeah, and and Ben and I are,
3: of course, always talking about our goal of drawing in new audiences. I think this is a really laudable uh, you know, project of going to a neighborhood where we know there's a new audience for this material and kind of confronting them with it. I mean, this is some of the most amazing material culture that this country has produced. You know, here it is, one block from the Twitter and Google headquarters, That's right. Thank you That's said. Right. <laughs> so it, it's kind of uh, a grand experiment in seeing how these audiences can be attracted. And if this stuff doesn't attract them, then we really are in trouble.
1: That's, it. <laughs> it's That's right. Yeah. It, it, I mean, at the risk of of getting a little bit of insider baseball in here, what um, so um, well? I'll I'll just sort of share my experience and, and ask you whether that um, is familiar to you and whether it relates to your business also. Because um, at at Trubsole, uh, the firm where I work, where we deal in antique silver, what we've found in recent years is that there aren't quite so many people buying sets of four candlesticks to give as wedding gifts anymore. You know, and there aren't so many people trying to complete their flatware services and. So instead of uh, selling a lot of what I say in a completely non-derogatory way, mm-hmm. what I call quotidian silver, instead of selling a lot of this sort of everyday <clears throat> silver for home use, we are selling more and more of the sort of the most rare, the most interesting, the most valuable mm-hmm. um, and collectible pieces. And we're selling them to museums and we're selling them to really specialized and and educated and often academically inclined um buyers which is fun because it means that we have an excuse to deal with really high quality material but it also uh, it doesn't feel like a great trend for the long term health of the business and i wonder if um if american furniture is experiencing anything along those lines i th- i think yes but um there's
0: one of the nice things about American furniture, I think all, almost all American decorative arts, is it's very inclusive in that you can find something from $200 or less all the way on up to, you know, to millions. Um, there's a lot of different things out there from, from all periods that people mm. can buy. Uh, I think some of the, the very sort of you know, good but not great things, the nice isn't doing as well right now although with prices falling as much as they have, it's opened up a lot more opportunities for people. So you're yeah. seeing, yeah. I mean, I'm seeing people coming back into the market who were scared off in the nineties, early two thousands, because the prices had gotten so crazy. Right. they had gotten so high and now they're back to something that's affordable. And, you, know, you can actually buy museum-quality things, things that are, are either the mate to or like the one at, at the Met or Connecticut Historical, depending on whichever museum you want to talk about, in the, the 1000 to $5,000 range. Yeah. And obviously, the higher up you go, the, the more that opens up, but there there are a lot of opportunities right now. And I know people are sort of pounding on that, that, that this is the time to buy, but it really is. There, yeah. there are opportunities out there, and you know, for for most of my career, I remember you know people just saying, "Oh, I, I wish this were the '50s again. I would have bought this, this, and this." Uh-huh. And we're in the '50s, right? Right. <laughs> you know, you're back right. to the point where, where things some things are bringing what they brought back then, yeah. the same dollar amount. Yeah. Some, yeah. if you you know, if you include the inflation and changes in dollar value, are, are significantly less than they were back. Right. Mm. So this is that opportunity to so buy low. Have to buy to buy low and um we're seeing people coming in because of that i think
3: i think it's also a reason to come into shops to go into shops where they survive as they do here because i know based on my experience with antiques fairs including the winter show which you both exhibit in and which i used to be a director of that economic pressures have forced uh dealers to bring that masterpiece level of material to shows, right? Because that is often, you know, you're investing a lot of money in your booth, you're taking a risk on that outing. And so it makes sense to bring, you know, the the rarest, most exceptional piece that you have on hand or a couple of them. And I know that, you know, you've both been successful in doing that and really showing that face of your business in that elevated venue, but, if you want those 1950s deals i think it's really wise yeah. to come into the shop yeah. to get to know a dealer in that territory you know and to go down to the basement so to speak and sort of find out what's there at the more accessible yeah. price range yeah um, and I'm, i love that you're going to kind of continue that tradition of keeping a, a shop but just in a new neighborhood right so oh. that that opportunity continues
0: it will be an open shop yeah I mean, we you know, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what days make the most sense. We we used to be open Tuesday through Saturday, and found that nobody was coming in on Saturdays, but you know, I'd come in on Tuesday and have a bunch of phone calls from Monday. You know, where are you? Why can't right. we come right. in? <laughs> um, I, I'm actually reconsidering maybe opening up on a, on Saturdays for down there yeah. just to give more access to, to for people to come in. Um, but absolutely, I mean, at a show you are limited in space. Yeah. So there's only, I mean, I guess if I bring 10 pieces of furniture, that's maybe 15. That's a lot. I mean, you see in this room alone where we're sitting, which you you can't see, but you can see. Um, Yeah, More than I'd have in a booth at any one time. And and this is one room of many. Um, So you're absolutely right. Coming into the shops and seeing what's available um, is worth it. and. I think sometimes people feel a little bit um, intimidated mm-hmm. by the shops, which is is such a shame because there's very little intimidating here. I mean, it's not like you break it, you buy it. We've never had anything broken, but it's all fixable if something were to get broken. And it's a good opportunity to come look through, talk to either me or to Melanie or to anyone else who's here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've done it too. I mean, I, I collect rocks and minerals. And and I know when I go to shows or into other people's shops, I'm always a little concerned. Well, I don't know as much as they do. And I, you know, I'm going to say something stupid. There's really nothing that you can say that's stupid. If you're showing interest in something that, that I love and care about, or we all love and care about that, just having the interest is means that there's nothing that you can say that's, that's going to be dumb, That's going to be a, a problem. So, you know, it's, it's a, open invitation to come into our shop. I'm sure it's an open invitation for your <laughs> shop. Um, and you don't have to feel like you have to buy anything because yeah. quite yeah. frankly, yeah. most people don't.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: so you're, you're in a club that's a big club. But, um,
1: and now that, the, now that admission to the Met isn't free anymore, admission to our shop still is. It
0: still
3: is. And the material there may end up in the Met someday, right? right. Come
1: and look at it in a comfortable that's
3: environment. Right. That's right. With no uh, entrance fee. All right. Well, this has been a pretty good advertisement for ourselves, but um, (laughs) it's also also fabulous advice. And I think it can be extended to every part of the antiques market, not just to silver and American furniture.
1: Well, thanks so much. Uh, That's very well put. And I appreciate you um, bringing us into your world and, and sharing these wonderful chairs with us. Um, Anything else that you'd like to add for, for listeners before we let you go?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I, I'm, just, I'm glad people are listening. I'm glad people are, are interested in this world because it is a fascinating world and there's so many aspects to it. Um, you know, there's the aesthetics, there's the history, there, there, you know, there's the engineering of the objects, there's the construction. There's so many ways to get excited about these pieces. Yeah. Um, I know I started, my interest was really in American history and to be surrounded by things that, that have historical importance, um, or maybe just were around when certain things happened, you know, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, yeah. whatever yeah. it is, um, that is, it, it still, it still gets the hairs on the back of my neck <laughs> yeah. when I think about some of the history. Yeah.
1: It was, I have to say, that when you mentioned that, you know, the first time that the chairs had left Manhattan Island, something about that just felt magical to me, you know, because they're so rooted in the, in this place that where we're standing, we're yeah. sitting right now. I really
0: felt bad. I mean, I, I couldn't turn around on the uh, on the Fifty Street Bridge, but <laughs> I felt bad that these were leaving. Uh, that these were leaving Manhattan.
1: I guess to me, it just sort of emphasizes. It's not that it's bad that they've left. It's just that it it really emphasizes the specialness of the object and, and the connection that they have. You know, sometimes you go into a museum or you or a, shop even or a private collection and you see an object and you know academically that it's connected to these old people and old places and times but something about just the way that you put it that those Mm -hmm. chairs had never left before made it feel so immediate to me yeah and these chairs that we were just looking at a minute ago and and touching you know there's a a, a continuum through history from our touch back through Back through um, the whole Beekman family, all the generations of it and, and its makers and the French uh tapestry the, the weavers and, and, and John
0: Banks hammering away. Yeah, John
3: Banks hammering yeah. away. And we may not have inherited the Beekman fortune, but we can look on those objects today and still benefit from them. Yeah, I yeah. think it's a it's a magical inheritance that we get to benefit from. Yeah. even if we don't if you and I don't get to own them. Not yet. Not yet. But we may come back here and uh,
0: lay down a check. We'll see. <laughs> That's the other beauty about the antiques market right now is that uh, all, all good offers considered.
3: So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll <laughs> you do that.
3: <laughs> thank you for sharing all of this history with well, us and pointing the way to the future.
1: That's a wrap. Thanks so much to Frank Levy for joining us. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out pictures at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast our music is by trap rabbit our editor and producer is sammy delati my co-host is michael diaz griffith and i'm your host ben miller